I'm Aaron Levy, the CEO and co-founder of Box. Welcome to Founder Calls. Founder Calls is like if Charlie Rose and Ira Glass had a really weird distant cousin that had an obsession with enterprise software. On these calls, we talk to CEOs, founders, and investors about building, selling, and scaling in the enterprise. Hello. Hey, Michelle. Yeah, Aaron. Hey, how you doing? It's Aaron. I'm great. It's Friday <laughs> afternoon, and uh, the weekend is upon us, so I'm excited. Yes. Any crazy plans? Actually, heading down to Carmel's, so I'm looking forward to it. Oh, a lot of uh, enterprises down there. <laughs> this is no enterprises down there. This is more for fun. Okay, got it. Okay, but I assume you'll do some work as well, right? I hope not. I hope oh. not. This <laughs> oh, this is like a complete sort of. Just disconnect from the internet. That's that's what I'm hoping for. Yes. So um, we'll see how that goes. You never know. No. Yeah. We're um, actually my uh, my my co-founders and I were going to um, uh, Half Moon Bay this weekend. We do an annual retreat um, where uh, where we try and just like think about the future and stuff. So uh, maybe we'll run into you. Maybe we'll see each other on the uh, what, the one on one south. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, we're uh, walking on some beach or something. So. Um, Cool. Well, so here's here's how this works. So this is a call where we're going to talk just about what you see happening in the world and where you think the future of uh, of the internet is going, uh, and then especially as it pertains to uh, things around security and enterprise software. Um, uh, and this is all about how to build enterprise software for the future. So does that sound good? That sounds great. Great. So maybe let's just um, start in the very beginning. I think that. Um, uh, the you know Cloudflare has had this amazing um, rise uh, to, uh, to to prominence over the past couple of years. It's been incredible to watch. Maybe you could just give us a little bit of backstory on the the sort of founding journey. Um, what uh, led you guys to creating Cloudflare and, and where things are at today? Yeah, sure. Thank you. well, thank you for the kind words. So um, five years ago, uh, Matthew, Lee, and I, the three co-founders, um, started to work on Cloudflare. And really our mission at Cloudflare is to build a better internet. Um, and what that means is our customers are anybody with a web property. So a website, an app, an API, they sign up for our service and we help make sure that it is, loads quickly around the world. We help protect them from a range of online cyber um, attacks or threats. And we make sure it's always online. So think of it as global performance, security, availability, load balancing, all of these things that are happening behind the scenes, these infrastructure sorts of things, we do as a service on behalf of all of our customers around the world. And the way we do that is we run this globally distributed network of 34 points of presence. And um, over the last five years, it's been pretty amazing to watch, um, to see all of these different customers who have signed up truly around the world where today we have 2 million domains that use Cloudflare and about 5,000 new ones signing up every day. Back to the kind of pure sort of founding origin though, what, what gave you guys even the idea? How did you know each other? Where, where, did, you, where did you start from? So we, um, I met Matthew at business school. So we were doing our MBAs and um, Matthew and I were classmates and we got to know each other and for those people who have the pleasure of knowing Matthew, he is just 
such a visionary, incredibly strong, um, strategic. He's got a technical background, a legal background, and a business background, which Weird. is very, 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 well, yeah, unique. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's very unique, but it's also really powerful when it comes to technology, right. being able to have those three. And um, so we met at business school, and at, he's a serial entrepreneur. And at his last company, he had started a open source project okay. that called Project Honeypot um, that mm -hmm. was basically this open source, open source project that tracked web spammers online. I knew nothing about web spammers, but he told me about this project and how over the course of five years, 80,000 websites had signed up for it. And, and I was like, what do they get? He's like, well, we just help track the, the known spammers online. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but what, why would someone sign up? What do they get? He's like, well, then we work with the law enforcement agencies to help take down the worst offenders. And I was like, well, that takes years. I don't understand how you, you, your little open source project with no budget has like gained such, such um, uh, um, success. And he said, well, one day all these people, web masters who sign up for Project Honeypot, want us to create a service that actually stops the, mm. the bad guys before it happened, not just track them. And I said, huh, that seems interesting. That's something I'm really, I'd be really proud to work on. And so it started like that. And so we started to work on it as a school project of could we create a service that helps protect any business, any web property from um, the range of online threats that exist on the web. And Lee, who's a third co-founder, was um, an engineer that worked at Matthew's last company. And the three of us set off to say, yep, let's do this full time. That's awesome. Wait, did you guys drop out of uh, business school? We didn't. We actually graduated. Oh, come on. That's I, so lame. I know. Well, I think it made my parents happy. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. So you have like two degrees? I have two degrees. All right, fine. Are you from Canada? I am. Which, what word, which word tipped me off? 80% of them. Oh, no. <laughs> what, um, one, of the, one of the cool things about what, what um, Cloudflare does is, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of cloud solutions and software as a service that um, uh, brings um, traditional software and moves it to the cloud. But what you guys do is actually replace um, things that usually were on the network or were otherwise going to be hardware solutions, and you virtualize those. So there's sort of a how, how many? Do you have a sense of like how many different traditional technologies you're compressing into a single into a single virtualized service? We think it's somewhere between five and ten, mm -hmm. and so you're, you're exactly right. Right, where, you know, it's not just our business, there's this huge shift going on where this old model of the large tech companies of yesterday, where there's kind of three tiers to web infrastructure, and there's the store compute layer, there's the application layer, and then there's this edge layer, which is where we really play. And you're seeing this huge shift from capital expenditures moving to OPEX, these software moving to services, mm -hmm. and hardware moving to, you know, the cloud. And you know, a lot of the winners of yesterday um, are having a really hard time making the shift for tomorrow, and that's giving great opportunity to companies like Box, like your company, or um, or or um, Amazon Web Services, or Workday, or you know, a, a company like ours to really um, build a good business that that um, that is kind of the version of the web for tomorrow. 
Uh, was there a specific inflection point when when um, when Silicon Valley and, and investors really started to take notice? I think you guys are, um, you know, the the um, you're, you're certainly in the the whole unicorn category. Um, but what but what what sort of happened? Because I'd imagine at first people sort of would have thought this wasn't going to be a big category, um, or, uh, or or it would be taken over by the Akamai's or or Cisco's of the world. What what changed that thinking and um, what uh, what have you guys seen from the venture capital side as you've been building up a, a security and, and really kind of networking company? Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's um, we were really under the radar for a long time, and even to this day, we still feel like we're under the radar, and that was very intentional. Hmm. Um, and you know, I we never wanted to get too far ahead of our skis. We we wanted to be a company that was judged on results, not based on what we what what what. what on hype, how, um, how quaint of you, <laughs> right? And and I think sometimes that's where startups go wrong is where there's a lot of hype and they're not given the room or the room they need to grow um, to to execute. And yep. so, are you just, by the way, are you uh, just referring to secret right now? <laughs> uh, that uh, no comment, no okay, no fine. no comment. I, <laughs> I, I I root for all entrepreneurs' success. Okay, um, I, I really do. Um, but you just see lots of examples where, um, you know, one that comes to mind is color, where they just, you know, right. a lot of hype early on, and it's just really hard to be successful when you have such expectations early on. Right. And so we intentionally chose not to do that. Um, having said that, we had some, we found some early investors who really um, believed in um, the idea and really believed and wanted to be a part of it, and and. They did that by having had a track record and in investing in some portion of the space. They really got it, and so we found the right investors early on who, you know, gave us said, "Hey, yeah, I'm in. Let's go." Who, see who what are you those? Can do. Just just for everyone listening, what 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 kind of investors are they, or, or literally who are they? Yeah, so it was Ray Rothrock from Venrock, um, Carl Ledbetter from Pelion Ventures of. Um, which is the old Novell um, mm. venture arm, and then um, Scott Sandell from NEA. Ah, wait, wait. Scott did, did your Series A. He did our B. He okay, came in on our B. B. Okay, got it. So Ray, so um, Ben Rock and Pelion did our A, and we raised two million dollars to really go prove that we could do this, and and we did in yep. a private beta and a beta, and then and then it was like, okay, great, now let's go scale. And that's when we brought in Scott, um, and that was back in 2010. So it'll be five years um, wow. this fall. And you know, and since then we've added other really great investors like Union Square Ventures out of New York, who they really understand, you know, how the internet works. Um, and we've been really lucky to find great people along the way who say, "I absolutely get this, and I absolutely want to be a part of it." But it took us a long time to be on the radar within within San Francisco. And in fact, a lot of our customers were definitely outside of what sometimes is referred to the echo chamber of tech. Right. Like it was just no one was using us here, and it was. All these businesses internationally, all these small businesses, everyone, anyone but San Francisco was using Cloudflare, and I think <laughs> in the last two years that's changed. Right, there's so been you were a huge flip. You were the Pinterest of security. <laughs> there you go. I like that. Yeah. That has a good ring to it. <laughs> um, so, so what? What? Um, so then, I mean, the the it's it's very obvious now. I think that uh, the the story is uh, is making um, is is very clear in terms of how powerful this is, especially as 
more and more applications move uh, to the internet, you definitely want to you want to make sure that you're you're protected um, and uh, in a much more um, kind of on demand and, uh, and 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 kind of flexible way. So, what are you seeing from the actual security landscape? I I, I largely think of you guys as having two kinds of customers. One is a blue chip Fortune 500 company that just wants to protect their their services and their internet sites and uh, and they don't want to have to build up a whole competency around doing that. And then the other is for software developers that that want to have your scale on day one uh, to protect their application. Is that is that largely correct or are there other categories that you're protecting? What is the what is the like landscape today look like for you? Yeah, those two are definitely correct. I mean, the landscape is a bit more broad in the sense of Anybody with a domain okay. should can can and should use Cloudflare. I mean, we have a free service, and then we have again blue chip companies who pay us a lot more. And you know the and so we have a lot of individual bloggers. We have a lot of um, mm. small business owners. Uh, we def we have a lot of governments that government agencies mm. that use Cloudflare. And some of our customers are incredibly technical. And some really aren't technical at all, and they don't understand anything. And it's like they're really good at running their business, and they just know they need something, and you know they kind of let us take care of that for them. And there's about 350 million domains on the internet, and we want all of them. Um, every time a site sends up for Cloudflare, any sort of um, threats against them or any sort of attacks they see, as the system learns, we share that intelligence with the rest of the community. And so you want a really, really right. diverse customer segment. Because in that in that case we have learn, the best security yeah. data. That's interesting. Exactly. Oh, okay, that that's actually extremely helpful that uh, you can then kind of correlate different kind of attacks happening in different segments. What um, uh, do you are you all self service right now? Have you built up a sales team? What does the sales model look like? Yeah, so we started with self service, and in the last year and a half, we've built out a, a sales team, an inside sales team, and actually we've taken a lot of inspiration from you know what you did at your company, oh. Box, because you guys are a couple of years ahead of how to do that. Um, and so we've um, we've started to build out the enterprise sales team, and that's um, going really, really well. Where you know the self service business is a big business for us, but so is the enterprise business. What uh, do you maybe without kind of giving too much uh, away? Do you have a sense? Can you share like a ratio between the two businesses in terms of scale or how that looks? It's um, they're about equal. Okay, Half, it's about fifty fifty. So um, you know the enterprise contracts are a lot larger dollar size, but right. our self serve business has been um, around a long time. So you can imagine we have a lot of breath. I get, I think the the saying goes we have a lot of scale and whales. And how do you connect the dots between the two businesses? So you have um, is there any specific process to take the self-service model um, and use that as a funnel or a lead gen system for the enterprise sales side or is the enterprise sales side all outbound? How does that look? Yeah, we don't the uh, there's in a lot of um, a lot of companies who have freemium businesses offer a free service so it becomes lead gen for a paid service. Right. And there's lots of literature that you can go and read online that says that's just a bad business. Oh. <laughs> you just should not do that. You it's should not, have told it's not, me. It's, oh. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. It's hard it to get hard. people to convert. It's, you know, 2 to 5% of free customers usually convert to paying and 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 it's one not. And so 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 from the beginning we kind of said well, let's just assume again we've learned from a lot of people who have tried that and said 
no, no, we're, we don't, we're not having a free service as lead gen for paid services. That's not why we do it. We do it because there's a lot of value that, get gener that gets generated in terms of the security data that makes the whole community stronger, and therefore right. we have the best security data so we can provide the best enterprise-grade security service for enterprises. So what's happening now on the threat side of the house, um, you know, maybe you could share a little bit about just like what does the global landscape look like today from a security standpoint? Um, if you're, especially if you're building enterprise software and you're trying to sell to the GEs or the Eli Lilly's or Toyota's or the Walmart's of the world, what do you need to be thinking about in terms of building security into your application? Um, and may, I don't know if you can maybe talk a little bit about the threats that those companies are facing and then thus what you have to do as a startup to protect your customers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so, you know, we kind of talked about these three tiers, where there's a store compute tier, the application tier, and the edge tier. And, you know, I think the application tier is really interesting, where, you know, before it was a lot of companies, you know, Microsoft, SAP, and um, Oracle really own the enterprise application market. Right. And what we've seen is this huge unbundling where, again, companies like Box or Workday or NetSuite or um, um, Google App Engine for email have really unbundled and created these great businesses based on functionality. And enterprises are saying, oh, wow, of course I want that. I want, you know, I'm bundling. I can pick, choose best in class and create the, the service that works for my, for my needs. And, and you see companies growing, building really big companies within this application and winning the enterprise market. And I think that's, that's interesting. But what that means for security is that the application providers um, are baking security in from the very start of what they're building. And it has to be. It's where it's like the, where the application inherently has to be secure in order for, for an enterprise to adopt it. And that there's a lot of trust around that. And so... It's not. It's not an add-on. So it's not like you buy an, um, a service, then you also add security on top. It's oh no, I'm I'm choosing Box because it is the most secure application for storage on the market, and I, I need that for my and it meets my business needs. So let me, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and um, uh, zoom into a couple of those concepts because uh, there's a, a lot there to unpack. Um, so if if applications and your data and the, the services you're moving are, are, are moving to the edge as opposed to being within your data center, and that means every software company has to become a security company, what actually happens to the role of security within an enterprise? So not on the software side, but like how does a chief information security officer then think about securing their organization if that security is now inherently distributed? Do you have any any, any sense of like, how that role is changing and thus how enterprises are, are going to have to change about that, how, how they change uh, their thinking about security? Well, one of, the, one of the things that I hear the most and I, I see the most in some of the, you know, the leading CISOs in the world, I think how, the, how, how they would describe it or how, how I've heard them describe it is the first is deciding what they're going to do in-house versus work with a third-party vendor for. Um, and that and having an, an understanding, hey, we are going to do everything in our health in-house. In what what are we okay working externally with, and what are we what are, and what are we not? And having a really clear understanding of that and a model to work with, um, because that allows their team and the organization to flourish. And so I've heard that consistently from CISOs of like, these are the things I'm okay with, and these are things you know helping think through that that framework. And I think that changes enterprise to enterprise based on what their 
what that enterprise's core competency is or what it specifically looks like or pe perhaps, you know, some, sometimes governed by regulations in, in, in the area. The CISO is also, you know, internally one of the big, you know, if you look at some of the biggest hacks like the Sony one, it's, it's a phishing hack against an employee within that company. And so CISOs have to think a lot about, uh, okay, if one of our employees is targeted, how do we, and, 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 and the attacker is successful, what do we do when that happens? It's, I make an, I've heard a CISO make an analogy of, it's like when you're in grade school and they do the fire alarm drills, where if there is ever a fire, everyone knows it's a very organized, orderly, you know, action plan of what to do. And so CISOs are thinking a lot about how do you protect the organization? How do we make these things faster so that when something happens, because right. again, even the best organizations in the world, something will happen. How do we respond and making sure that the response is organized and, and that everyone on the team knows? And that's really a critical um, piece to their role now. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah, so it, it is interesting. I think that the a lot of modern uh, security organizations are recognizing that there's going to be so many different kinds of attacks and they're going to need to create a culture that, that is aware of the phishing attack and they need to make sure they have the right kind of assist, you know, systems for, um, for analyzing and preventing any threat that they can, but there's as much need to focus on the response now as there is on prevention because that difference between responding in 10 minutes versus an hour versus a day versus a week um, is exponential in terms of the kind of damage that can be um, that, that that can be had, and and if you look at the Sony example, I think some of the some of the um, uh, analysis shows that the uh, you know that 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 was attack that was over a many many month period um, before it was ultimately discovered and and being uh, and, and shut off. And so when you think about um, that role of response time and incidents response, um, that's a huge focus now for a lot of security organizations, and clearly something that I think. A lot of uh, a lot of security organizations are a little bit behind on just because this this wasn't a huge need before. Exactly, you're right, and again, it's this shifting. And I think you know we the technology industry is so interesting because things change so fast, and that's just it's an incredible opportunity because it creates gives entrepreneurs like you know myself and yourself opportunities to create really um, impactful businesses. But then it also means that you really got to stay current and right. be able to change as as the landscape changes because, as you said, the landscape has changed. But how do you um, – the thing I always wonder is like how should CISOs be measured given that it's almost inevitable that there are going to be attacks and there's almost inevitable that, that some – uh, some part of the organization at some point is going to be um, lose data or, uh, or or have an issue. Do you, do you have a sense of like how that job itself is going to change over time? Well, what 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 um, I think is going to happen is that there's going to be a lot more transparency. Huh. Where you're right, where it's going to be, it it's. I think that this premise of we have to protect it from never happening. Of course, that's what the goal is, but things are going to happen. And so being clear of when things happen, it doesn't have to be externally, but just internally, this happens, this is what we're doing about it, this is what we're making sure it doesn't happen again, is I think the best CISOs in the world are going to be able to do that. Right, right. And we were, um, so we were together at the, uh, the Cybersecurity Summit in, uh, in Stanford a couple months ago. What do you think about the, what the U.S. government is doing on the, on the cybersecurity, um, uh, maybe legislation or... Uh, intelligence sharing side. So maybe NSA aside for a second um, on the more 
um, uh, on, on what they're doing with industry, what they're doing uh, in terms of trying to protect the country. Any, any thoughts on how you've uh, interacted with or seen the government respond to this? Well, I, you know, I think that the, um, bef you know, for a long time, the security industry was built on fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and it was a very isolated industry, and, and we've seen it become much more mainstream, where I think a great example is Heartbleed, where, you know, there was this vulnerability in OpenSSL, and instead of having the, you know, the vulnerability RP2356, which is, you know, <laughs> only the security researchers know what you're talking about. Yeah. They created a logo. Yeah, there's they a logo. They yeah. heart bleed. And, and next thing we know, it's on CNN and, and, and Fox News. And my mother's calling me saying, hey, Michelle, what's this heart bleed thing? Should I worry about it? And I, and I think that's good. Like again, I think I think it's great that we're that we're showing a public interest in in yeah. in, in these topics topics and, and it's important um, to move the discussion forward and to get the next generation of uh, people who are coming up into the workforce excited to work on these problems and help solve them and make sure you know another heartbleed doesn't happen or or if it does, be part of the the group that helped solve it. Well, President Obama was out here in February. I mean, I think if you talk to any of the staffers, they said. Had you told me we were going to have a two-day cybersecurity summit in on Stanford campus and the president was going to come five years ago, I would have said no way. And I think the fact that it happened and that he did come is a symbol of you know what how much has changed in five years. And so you know I, I think that tech companies and industry definitely need to partner um, with with government um, on the policy side because it's really important um, to set the to set the tone um, of what we're doing. And, and so I'm encouraged that, you know, Washington is building bridges with industry and I feel like industry is doing a better job building bridges with Washington, but we are just at the very beginning and we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I know it'll be interesting to see how much more the government kind of steps into the the sort of protection and and uh, side of the equation. Cause I mean, this is a, this is a really difficult challenge because um, we're so used to the, the government protecting kind of core infrastructure and um, protecting, you know, the, a lot of the, the, the core things that we think of as public utilities or public services. Um, but now all of the, the valuable assets and the valuable information are in private corporations and private networks and private servers. Um, and so the, the, the government has this really difficult battle um, to, to try and figure out how, how involved should they or can they get um, with, uh, with, with, with still being able to remain neutral and, uh, and, and be kind of, you know, um, be, uh, you know, involved at the, the right level, uh, that is appropriate for the, the government. So I think, I think finding that balance is, uh, is going to be extremely difficult for them. Um, but probably something that, that needs to continue to be a, an important conversation. Um, before I, I'm going to ask you one thing on the NSA, but, but as you were mentioning the, um, the, uh, the Heartbleed uh, thing and your mom, uh, I pulled up uh, an old text um, that I had saved. Um, my mom, um, on, the, uh, on the day that Heartbleed happened, um, she, uh, she texted, did Heartbleed hit you? Uh, and, and I said, yes, uh, but we're fine. Um, and she says, uh, okay, but you're on Mashable. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and then she subsequently texted me a link to um, a Mashable link that uh, that talked about Heartbleed and uh, and and what you need to be paying attention to. So um, that was uh, it. Having a logo and a name like Heartbleed really uh, really got to uh, <laughs> to a lot of uh, different demographics than than security issues run into. So that was that was quite enjoyable. Um, so sounds like your mom is really cool. If she's reading Mashable. I mean, I, I, th I have no idea how she got to Mashable. That's <laughs> that's not supposed to be allowed in my family. But uh, I guess the, uh, she because she she'll just 
she's going to end up doing probably like starting like like or buying gadgets now or something. So um, so what um, uh, so now on the other side of the of the uh, government issue. Uh, we have the NSA piece. So on one hand, the government has to get involved to protect, you know, critical infrastructure, let's say utilities and, and trading systems um, and stuff that, that we think is pretty fundamental to, to kind of keeping the country healthy. But on the other side, um, we have this surveillance issue and this um, security threat, which is um, has been, you know, not only uh, difficult from a civil liberties standpoint, but also painful from the international consequence standpoint what what's what sort of cloudflare's official stance and 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 to the extent that yours is different what what is what is yours and how do you think about all of it there's this this there's this balance between preserving our privacy as individuals as well as making sure that we're safe at, you know as individuals um, and then you know the tech companies saying or technology companies playing a role of being like well there are some technical solutions we can do to make it make sure that privacy is easy um, so that if any Anyone's trying to 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 overreach on the surveillance side, um, that that makes it more difficult, and that's you know through Apple's encryption with their new phone and whatnot. And there's this whole discussion going on right now, and it's a really important discussion to have, and and we should have that. And there are a lot of important voices to to play, and we need to find a solution where where we as individuals do have privacy, but for when someone really is trying to do something really, really awful to this country or to a person in this country, that law enforcement agencies can take action where appropriate. Maybe I'm a little bit cynical in, in terms of how our government operates and uh, ending up with the right answer to these kind of things, but certainly um, they're, they're going through the process in, uh, in a thoughtful and methodical way that could lead them to having the right answer if, uh, if they choose to look at all the evidence and all the, the, the data um, and, and kind of what it, what it points to. I was just in London this week, and um, I think one of the challenges, uh, certainly in our business, is um, at Box, is that you have a lot of international policies and regulations that are uh, emerging or at least being proposed that could lead to a very, very different kind of internet in terms of um, you know a lot of data localization requirements that really balkanize uh, how how the internet would operate. And our our big fear is that. Um, not that we wouldn't be able to support that because we're at least large enough where we can invest in the, the systems to, to make that possible, but that that would curtail a lot of innovation because it would mean as a startup you don't get to be global on day one. Um, it would mean that the hurdle would be so massive to uh, to being able to work on a global scale, which is sort of inherently the benefit of, of the internet. So if, if do you, I don't know, if, do you have any kind of points of view on, on that or, or what you would do if um, you know, you were in, in charge of the government or, or what Cloudflare is pushing on? Oh, I, I have my hands full building Cloudflare. <laughs> you cannot be in charge of the, the government. I okay, know. fine. So Obama has a lot more gray hair since he started office eight years ago. But uh, the, I, I, we cannot, the, the internet is, you know, www stands for World Wide Web. Right. I mean, it inherently has to be worldwide and and. The, the some of these country rules to help segment. Um, you know, again, I, the the Secretary of State for the United States has done a lot of work behind the scenes to help get them to push back from some of their pretty extreme stances. I think Brazil is like an example where industry in Brazil and industry in the United States went together and said, "This is what you're proposing would mean for Brazilian companies in, in a negative way," and 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 they've softened up a little bit, and so. 
we have to keep doing those work. We have to have these conversations. You know, again, this is at the government level because you're right. It's it's the United States is is only one small market. We're talking about the global market, and so I, I it would be. There are a lot of important organizations like ICANN that's doing a lot of work to 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 make sure that the internet stays free and open, so that innovation can flourish. So, final final question: If you're building software for the enterprise in this day and age, where you've got you know hackers from North Korea, you've got cyber um, you know you, you've got the cyber crime looking for credit card data, you have um, internal threat actors. Um, malicious or, or, or not malicious, um, and there's just so many things going on for the customers, like the Fortune 500 and beyond, and you're building software for these uh, these companies, what do you need to be thinking about in terms of, you, you mentioned every engineer is uh, needs to be thinking about security as they build their product, but I, I don't know if there's like three or four best practices beyond just even developing your, your software in such a way where, where it's just sort of free of XSS um, you know, SQL injections. Um, what what are the what's the mindset of the of a company today that's going after the enterprise to keep their companies protected? Any best best practices on this front? Uh, so I think first is figure out what you're going to do in house and what what you're going to partner with someone who's already really good at it. So a great example is like two factor authentication. If you, I mean, you just need to build that in for to your company from day one, but you probably shouldn't build it yourself. Like use an outside vendor that's really good at that. Where that's that's that's, you know, offer that on behalf of your customer. So something, that's one of those, like, really simple things. So what are we going to do in-house? What can we do externally? And there are a lot of, again, best-in-class solutions externally. It's like, great, let's just assemble these together. So and two-factor is one example where it just seems, you know, if I was, if there's a YC Combinator company, it's like, just, uh, I had, like, five words, I'd be like, sign up for, you know, two-factor. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Those are like, that, that's that. That's that. Um, the the other thing is know what you know and again I think for any company it's like having a diverse team and so there are some people who are super like just passionate about cryptology and who are pas passionate about like they're just naturally really interested in this and if that's you that's great and then find you know uh, other team members as you build your team that have diver that that's 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 diverse. If you're the opposite camp where it's like you know nothing about this and it petrifies you, well, then you better go out and recruit someone who right. naturally knows something about it to help build it in from day one because what you don't want is to get to an organization of 300 people and no one in there know, uh, where, where you have no you know, internal champion to help you know, with the mm. training and to help seed the DNA. And so you, know, you have to ask which side are you on and then go find the opposite side of you to help build this diverse team because, again, I think really strong companies have diverse teams and diversity means of course where you're from and gender but it also means skill set and interests and i think that's i think companies that can do those like can do that um, build really really can 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 build really special things interesting i i like that point around um, cuz i think i think it, this is something that sort of is lost on a lot of early startups and and i mean we were um, I can I can attest to this firsthand because we didn't know how important security was going to be to our value proposition um, until customers obviously started pushing on it. But but the um, you know a lot of founding teams um, you're just focused on innovation, you're just focused on user experience, you're just focused on getting to market quickly, and not necessarily all the best practices around security. And then you wait till 
that first major event happens and now you've already sort of, you, you've, you've moved back so many steps from a brand and reputation and potentially even, um, you know, a financial standpoint uh, because of that, that not being there on, on day one or at least day three. So, so I think having that diversity um, on the security side is incredibly important because most people that are just building applications don't think about security from day one, and that's going to be a pretty important shift if you're building enterprise software today. Do you have any thoughts on the checks and balances that, that need to then emerge from a cultural standpoint? Because if you just if you index only on speed and innovation and, and, uh, and, and building whatever you want, um, how do you make? How do you ensure that there's the right check and balance from a security standpoint? Yeah, well, that's actually you know some of the biggest risks are internal risks where it's you hire somebody that that um, onto your team, and so having internal checks and balances are really really important. Um, uh, you know, if you're an engineer checking in code, doing code reviews, I mean, having another set of eyes that's just such a best practice nowadays, and and really. Um, Helpful in these sorts of things, um, restricting access to you know the root level of different servers. If you're running an operations team and logging who has access and, and whatnot, those sorts of things where you you do need checks and balances. And as your organization grows and you really mature as an organization, those sorts of things become you know are, become more and more important. And so, implementing it early on and getting this good hygiene means you'll be head and shoulders above peer companies yep. um, if you try and do it after. It's almost it's much easier to do it from day one than trying it's it's so painful to add it later. Any final messages? Um, no matter what, we're gonna make sure that everybody uses Cloudflare when they uh, when they listen to this. But other other than that, any other important uh, wisdom to impart on the listeners? No, just that uh, you know, I uh, thanks for the time. This is a lot of fun and for anyone listening it's uh, there's, there's so many exciting opportunities in the world today. You know, go out there and make them happen. Awesome. And, uh, and Michelle, please just keep protecting the internet then. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Have a great weekend. <laughs> okay. And I will uh, keep rooting for your success. Can't wait to see what you guys do next. Okay. I mean, uh, yeah, I can't either. It's going to be great. We're going we're, we're to find out what we're going to do next. Um, and we'll see you on the beach this weekend. Okay. Sounds good. Or wherever uh, we are. See you. Yeah. Bye.